Hi there everyone and welcome to another episode of Murray Musings. I'm joined by my wonderful co-host Scott and Peter and our guest host Zainab, who some of you might remember from an earlier episode of Murray Musings last year. Now earlier this week Murray Musings celebrated its first birthday and over the past year we've had some incredible guests but I think it's fair to say in regards to today's special guest none of us have been this excited since Peter got Andy to record our outro at Indian Wales last year. So <laughs> joining us today <laughs> is a person who has worked tirelessly over the years to change the face of British tennis, mm -hmm. literally driving from one end of the country to the other to ensure that tennis is accessible to all. And their work to get more young girls in particular into the sport has been nothing short of amazing. And on top of all that, this person has managed to produce not one, but two world number one tennis superstars. Ladies and gentlemen, I am, of course, talking about the amazing Judy Murray. Judy, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Murray Musings HQ. No, thanks for thanks for having me. I know you've been uh, trying to to get me to, to come on for a little <laughs> while now. And actually, the way, that, well, I suppose, it, I don't know if it's the way that my life is normally. And then obviously with COVID, it's, been, it's always so difficult to plan things and I'm I actually have become really reluctant to put things in my diary for fear of something cropping up and then you let people down and mm. so I actually haven't done anything like this for for quite a wee while um that's not work specific related if you know what I mean so but I know that uh, you're all massive massive um, fans of Jamie and uh, Jamie and Andy and that you do incredible um incredible things to support them and have done for many many years and we are all very very grateful for for your support always so it's so it's lovely to be with you that's great thanks uh yeah again thanks for joining me today how was uh how was your christmas how was your year how was how was all that for you yeah it was it was it was well just like what i was saying about things having mm. to change all have to adapt to things we we were all set for going up to aberdeen for battle of the brits and yes. um, for Jamie's yep. and uh, we had a lot of family going up as well mm. and then they were all going to come back down to the centre of Scotland um, to have Christmas together or as together as we would be allowed to be mm. but with the event being cancelled and the rapid rapid spread of Omicron that all had to change relatively last minute four or five days before mm. the event it was of course the right thing to do to to cancel it to give people enough time to make, make arrangements or cancel arrangements and uh, obviously to keep everybody safe so hopefully and uh, jamie and the venue and the players of course can find a an alternative date that will suit um in the not too distant future that of course is a challenge in itself being able to get mm. the venue time when you can get all of the players mm. and of course that date around christmas um, nobody's competing at that time, so everybody is relatively free to do it. So, so that was um, a, a big change, but we still uh, still managed to have a good um, a good family Christmas. We didn't uh, we didn't have Andy. He he didn't travel up. Um, he's got so many kids now. They must need a minibus to travel up, do they? <laughs> But also, you know, because of, um, Omicron was was spreading so quickly, and yeah. because he missed Australia last year because of um, contracting COVID just before he was due to fly, he didn't want to take any risks to to miss out again. So, 
so yeah, we had uh, we had a very nice time uh, in any case, but we uh, we we did miss Andy and Kim and the kids for sure. Uh, more generally, like how how have your last few years been? Um, like on on the tours and like obviously it's been a little bit it's been a little bit shaken up obviously with uh, with COVID. But um, have you noticed like like what what's been the biggest kind of change for you in the last couple of years? Well, I have um, really haven't traveled at all oh. i mean at the end of last year i went to antwerp with andy and i went to yes. turin with jamie and i hadn't been anywhere since australia 2020 uh it was really when we came back from there that everything started to to kick off in terms of um in terms of covid so it's affected me enormously in terms of my my work my overseas work especially with um with overseas federations and with the WTA in particular, I do, as you probably know, uh, quite a bit of community engagement work with the WTA around some of yeah. their major events. A lot of those events that they ask me to go to are in the uh, Australia and Asia. Yeah. And, you know, so for me, I, I love that kind of work. And I, I love, of course, um, encouraging more people to come and try tennis and training people to show them how to make starter tennis fun and doable and also to be encouraging more women to not just get involved in playing but get involved in the workforce and I don't mean coaching I just you know whether it's delivering competitions or helping out at the local club I have a super super project that I started probably I think four years ago now in New South Wales with New South Wales who have a chief exec who is Scottish and uh, he knows me for a long time and knows of my work. And he asked me to go over and set up a programme over there to grow their female workforce. They had hardly any in a massive, massive state like New South Wales. They had hardly any female coaches. So, of course, I'd done something similar in the UK with She Rallies. So I went over and we started with 20, 20 female coaches and some of them had travelled well, one in particular had travelled 13 hours to get to Sydney. That's how massive the state is. But but great parts of the state are uh, deserted. So it was it was obviously going to be a challenge. But the way that we did it was that I trained these these 20 ladies up over a sort of two two and a half days in Sydney during the uh, the WTA and ATP events. So there was the inspiration of all the top players being there. There was the sunshine. And we had a really, really great time. And the idea was for them to go back into their backyards or their clubs, their areas, and find at least one other woman or teenage girl, a club member, teacher, um, to bring into their workforce, to buddy up with and who could help out. So it would help them to grow their business. It would help to grow the female workforce. Anyway, cut a long story short, there's now something like um, 153 women in that program that's now, amazing, wow. amazing. So from amazing. Moms, club members to teenagers to teachers to volunteers, mm. uh, you know, people who just enjoy tennis who wanted to to get involved. So it's that's been fabulous. But of course, I, I wasn't able to go over and uh, and do it this year. Normally, we do it during the, the the summer season before I go down to Melbourne. But hopefully next year, because that's that's Fingers two crossed. years of <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it's affected me hugely in terms of work and being able to, to travel. So it's kind of made me stay at home, which, um, you know, what I'm like, I, I don't sit still very well and I've always got itchy feet and I always want to be doing something and be productive and be helpful. So I, I think the first few months of the lockdown, I really did actually enjoy it. I enjoyed the switch off and not having okay. to do anything. Mm. 
and then of course you start to get a bit bored (laughs) (laughs) and and then you realize how restricted you are because so much of my work I have big numbers of people in front of me whether it's a conference or Mm. workshops or whether it's clinics for kids or sessions in schools they're all about big numbers so so much of that was cancelled too so what I did quite quickly and I was very very fortunate that I had so much of my work backed up um on video was I turned um I turned my a lot of my workshops into online courses or online sessions and we were actually blown away by how far and wide our reach was compared to if we're physically presenting it can't be everywhere so that was an idea for me as a sort of older person who's a bit of a technophobe it's like (laughs) wow this is incredible you know and look I'm, I'm talking to all of you Zena and Canada, Peter in Texas, and it's, it's quite incredible what technology will allow you to do. So, I would say work-wise, I've been I've been very quiet. Um, uh, so, like everybody, you just you learn to adapt. It makes you yeah. evaluate your life. It makes you realize what's important to you and what's not. Who's important sure. to you and who's not. Yeah. So, um, yeah, in that way, very much like everybody else. But it's it's been a huge difference to certainly to my my daily life and, and my working life in particular yeah, yeah definitely. Fair. do you think um do you think it's given you an opportunity to dream up any other like sports initiatives tennis initiatives for for in the UK I mean I, I obviously I, I attended um one of the uh little introduction tennis courses that you did at Toll Cross um back in September um, and I know my daughter in particular, she absolutely loved it. She loved the mm. all the various ways of, of how you can play tennis and do your tennis training without actually using a bat and a ball and, and how to make it fun. Um, have you used the lockdown time to come up with more initiatives like that? Um, I'd say that uh, certainly with what we did with the online courses, we had a... Um, a family tennis one so we kind of aimed that at parents to show them how they could I think that they could play with their kids at home or in the garden in the driveway well basically in whatever space they had using simple play equipment or even just things that they have lying around the house because you can adapt a target cone to be a Tupperware box standing on its standing on its side so it's most like you're rushing out to or or calling Amazon uh, for an online delivery of, of new stuff you could actually adapt to things that you mm. had around but I think that the aim of that was really showing parents how they could keep kids active in mm. the home space whatever that might be how it didn't have to be expensive and how you can actually help your kids to develop those just the basic physical skills that you need to be able to play any sport to be honest it's mm. a bit coordination skills and I think that you know, Joe Wicks did such a great job with what he was doing with getting people up and getting people active. And I think what, you know, I think that gave lots of us ideas as to, well, actually, we could set something up and we just invite people in um, to come and see what we have to do. So everything that we did, that was when I did that through my foundation, um, everything that we did was was free of charge. Um I think uh, the with the Miss Hits course, which is uh, aimed at getting little girls aged five to eight started and encouraging more women and teenage girls to get involved in delivering tennis or assisting in delivering tennis. Uh, we put that, that was an online course. Uh, we put that out for free uh, pretty much the whole way through the, the lockdown, through the WTA, through the ITF. So we really, 
we really did get get far and wide and actually we did we did as a small very small charity with a small number of very proactive people we actually made a lot more happen than most of the governing bodies did during lockdown mm -hmm. simply because Absolutely. we got off did it and we understood what could be done and we understood what the needs were so I the other thing I did which was um, a really great thing as in I loved it and it will hugely benefit tennis across Scotland uh, was I, I filmed um, for Education Scotland a, a completely comprehensive tennis resource for how to deliver starter tennis in schools from age five or what we would call primary one mm -hmm. right through to final year of school so kind of team type stuff so different things at different ages and stages of the curriculum and it took about four or five days to to film it and um, we filmed some of it just instructional and some of it where we um we, we took footage of, of, of kids so, so that the teachers watching it or the student teachers could actually see everything in action but it was very much aimed at what teachers would have in their cupboard uh, in terms of equipment and what space they might have, whether that was a school playground, a school gym, the artificial grass pitch. So we showed them how you could deliver tennis, starter tennis in schools without having tennis courts, because often that's the first thing that people say is we don't have tennis courts, so we can't do Absolutely. it. And it's absolutely not true. You 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 absolutely can get started with without a court. And mm. as the same with tennis, you know, you can get started without being at a tennis club or a tennis tennis venue. Yeah. I'm always creating things. I'm always looking for people to follow on Instagram, Twitter. I'm always on YouTube looking at what other people are doing and thinking, oh, I like that. How could I adapt that to? Because for me, it's it's so much about uh, physical literacy and developing skills in kids at a young age. And those are skills that will set you up for any sport that you want to play, but they'll also set you up for, for life and they need to be mm -hmm. developed young. And I think that the more we can share how simple these things can be, because if I look back to when I was young, there were no such things as tennis coaches in Scotland. You know, you yeah. just learn from the older people at the club. Mm -hmm. There wasn't coach, so you just learn by playing or, yeah. you know, and there wasn't even on the telly to watch. So yeah. I'm just a believer in it doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be a fancy club. It just needs it just needs families to play actively together regularly. I feel like Zoom sessions and doing it online has shown people that you can deliver these services without all of that as well. Uh, mm. When lockdown initially started, I had this gap where I couldn't be a pharmacist because I had one final assessment to do. So it kind of I felt really low for a few months. And then mm. as you brought up Joe Wicks, uh, me and my husband were doing some of his um, stuff we'd wake up and we'd do it obviously be really early in the morning so when we woke up we'd do that and both that and you inspired me to start delivering online zoom sessions to girls and ladies in my own community which unfortunately due to lockdown there wasn't anything so people would literally be looking for stuff to do but there wasn't anything we were in proper lockdown we couldn't do anything yeah. And it just opened up the world and it showed that, you know what, in a small space, you can still do some tennis, you can still do some football, soccer, can still do all this fitness. And I just feel like it opened up the world to, to everyone. It is, it's something you can, everyone can do. And it's really good that you were able to bring it out there to everyone around the world. Yeah, I, th I think it was really was an eye opener for me, just how far the reach 
could be and actually how simple it 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 could be and it really is just about understanding and getting off your butt and doing something not waiting mm. for somebody else to do it and I was yeah. actually quite surprised how little some of the the governing bodies um actually did uh, to take advantage of the opportunity at you know at a time it was more like oh my god we can't do this and we can't do that so I'm not about what you can't do just focus on what you can do Mm-hmm. That's fair. That's fair. It, it never occurred to me um, just the the absolute simple process that there is behind teaching kids the basics. Um, I taken my daughter gets coached um, at the local tennis club, and I'd gone up with her one day and we brought my little boy who was only four at the time. And we tried to get him to play with her, and he just you know he the racket was too big for him. The, even the the red balls, he couldn't he couldn't quite hit them back, and he he just got really frustrated, and he said, "I don't know how to do this. I can't play this." And he he put the racket down, and he he went and sat on the side. Um, but after watching some stuff that you've done, Judy, and listening to your tips, I had him in the house one day, just rolling a ball back and forward using the bat along the ground and doing a balloon and hitting it back and forth to each other, and all of a sudden he started to, to he started to kind of feel more what he was doing and he said oh I can't wait to go up to the tennis courts now and play with my sister and I was like you know that's something that I would never have thought to do without following what you do on social media so you know it's just it's and it's like you say it's so simple but it's so so effective so you know if, if my kids end up um it's definitely simple it it is simple but it's like so many things everything is easy if you know it if you don't know it it's like oh and and so many I think parents and teachers quite understandably if they've seen tennis on the tv they think tennis is you need a net you need rackets you need a ball and you hit it with it of course that's the ultimate Mm. aim you need skills to be able to do that and you know it starts with being able to throw in and catch something mm. and and the simplest things are the chip on squares and the balloons that, that are either big colorful and slow moving and you build confidence through the success and we should never under underestimate that like you may be found with your son i can do this therefore this is more fun and i'd like to try it whereas if you start with something that is too difficult which many coaches and parents do they start with the throwing the ball over a net and expecting them to be able to hit it no yeah. Start along the ground. If you have to start with a yeah. ball, start along the ground and start mm-hmm. with your hand. Um, or start and start with something big so that they, yeah, so that the confidence thing is huge, I think, especially especially nowadays. I think there's less resilience in kids and there's also so many other things that they can do. There's so many other things um, that they can fill their leisure time with. And a lot, a lot of those things have got screens, unfortunately, and that doesn't develop any kind of physical literacy other than perhaps in your... <laughs> yeah, they're really getting the thumb movements going. That's, what it is. <laughs> that's, that's, that's about it. <laughs> um, so I think uh, one of the things we wanted to talk to you about as well, Judy, was um, the the legacy um, mm. and and with the LTA. And I think I think this was something that um, Peter was a bit keen to to bring up. Yes, um, I would love if we could uh, demolish Trump's uh, resorts uh, and uh, uh, rename them uh, Murray uh, Centers. <laughs> um, but that's just me. 
I, I don't know if you want to go for that and just uh, demolish Trump's legacy in Scotland. Um, but yeah, what do you think about um, the legacy that uh, Andy and Jamie, you know, have had in Scotland, uh, their impact and how it's been underutilized? Um, and I understand it, it looks like it's a not in my backyard issue um, of building tennis centers. Can you explain a little bit more about like what's going on and what we can do to try to keep their legacy alive? Yeah, it's, um, I think um, the, the, you know, it, it's a huge topic, um, but I think the thing for me is that it, Scotland has not capitalized on the opportunity that's presented to the country through Andy and Jamie's success, which has been a very, it's been a lot of years, you know, I think uh, Andy's first Wimbledon was 2005, Jamie's 2006, they're still going in 2020 or 2022 now. Um, and there's been a lot of success in the major events over those years, as, as you all know, and, and Olympics and Davis Cup, uh, Grand Slam, ATP Tour and so forth. So the opportunity to grow the game when you have a show, a shop window like that, when you have contenders in all of the major events for so many years in a country that where tennis is very much a minority sport, it really needed somebody with a vision and an ambition and a passion uh, to create a plan and a, strate a strategy, uh, not a wish list, not somebody with a wish list. Wish lists, is, wish lists are easy. Uh, I'm sick of wish lists. It's like, well, where's the objective? Where's the targets? Where's the, you know, yeah. okay, you're saying you want to do that, but mm -hmm. how are you going to do it? Um, so I think that one of the big challenges for us is that in Scotland, most of our tennis clubs, I think there's just over 200, um, they are three or four court clubs and they are largely in residential built-up areas. So there isn't room to expand even if they wanted to. Yep. And, you know, for the most part, of course, they don't have indoor facilities. Um, many more now have floodlights. And over the years, most of those have changed to an artificial grass surface. Yep. Uh, which for if it's well, like playing on soggy wet carpet it's and <laughs> it's the worst playing surface or learning yeah. surface or computer surface it's awful but it mm -hmm. was sold in oh i don't know maybe 30 maybe more years ago when it was invented as a surface and in yeah. scotland because we we played six months of the year most of us uh, had old blaze courts or what you might call shale courts so mm. kind of play and you really couldn't play in the winter because of the, the frost and, and the, the bad weather. So mm. people played tennis for six months of the year and then they would play something else in the winter and then the clubs would open up again in the spring. Yeah. And when artificial was presented as an, op as an option, um, nearly all of our clubs changed over to it um, over, over, the, over the years because it was sold in as low to no maintenance and the, water, the rain goes through it and you can play all year round. And I think, you know, now 30 or so years later, we recognize it's a terrible playing surface. It's not internationally recognized. Um, and that the playability of that carpet is completely different depending on the weather conditions. So if it's wet, the moisture comes off on the tennis balls, the tennis balls get big, fluffy and heavy. They don't bounce very high. It puts mm -hmm. pressure on wrists and elbows and shoulders. Um, and when it's dry 
and especially if the, the, they can be very fast, especially if the courts have become a bit worn out, like carpets do, uh, they become a bit slippery and they play very fast. So it's completely different. So if you compare that to learning how to play, I don't know, in Florida on hard courts where the weather's always nice and the bounce is always true or the, the clay courts in, in Europe, um, we're just miles away from miles away from that. So that's one thing uh, that it just amazed me that nobody ever picked that sooner, that that was or listened perhaps to people who were telling them this is a terrible surface for the development of the game or the development of players in, in Scotland. Um, so that's one thing. Um, I think that for me, um, I would much rather see, uh, see the legacy of Andy and Jamie being about many more people having the chance to play tennis and tennis becoming a much bigger sport in our country. And to do that, you have to have courts in public places. You need to have courts in state schools. And over the last 50 years or so, when there was a time when most of our state schools would have had tennis courts in some shape or form, they've all been lost over the years because they weren't being used. They're big spaces and those big spaces are often valuable. They're valuable for other sports, for car parks, for extra facilities in the school um, in terms of buildings or be sold off for housing or retail. We've seen it everywhere. And then when suddenly Jamie and Andy's success came and it created a huge fan base, wonderful fan base across the country and many more people wanting to try it, they couldn't find the courts in the state schools and they couldn't find the courts in the public parks because they too had either been left to go into disrepair um, and, uh, or they'd been turned into skate parks or car parks or, or something else. And uh, I think just recently the LTA and the UK government announced a 30 million package to rescue disadvantaged um, not, not disadvantaged, uh, courts that had fallen into disrepair or were completely derelict, unplayable or derelict. And so I put out on my Twitter, right, come on Scotland, send us in where the courts near you are that would fit into this category mm. and we make sure that we put them in front and give ourselves the best chance to get as many of these resurrected. And I thought, isn't it ridiculous that I've done that? Um, yeah. That You know, I, I've done that because I sent an opportunity and yeah. of course I got yeah. loads of replies mm. and the replies shocked me. They, they, in lots the of pictures ways, they were so sad. Yeah. It shocked me so many of them, Peter. I think that was the thing. And then somebody had done a survey uh, and it said that over 50% of our public courts in Scotland are unplayable or, or, or derelict. And I thought, and then the BBC, which is our main broadcaster um, over here, they actually picked up on that and the fact that £50 million had been put into Tennis Scotland right after Jamie and Andy became world number ones at the end of 2016. And it was like, you know, I think both of the boys spoke out about the fact there's still only six pay and play indoor centres in the whole of the country. Still, yeah. since, mm -hmm. since 2006, there, there, weren't, there were none, no others. Nothing had been built in all that time when they'd been at the top of the game. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and so 15 million, it was seven and a half from Sports Scotland and seven and a half from the LTA went into Tennis Scotland just for indoor centres. But what they did was they... <clears throat> They put out to anybody who would like to express an interest in building indoor courts at their club or their venue or their school or wherever. And if you think about it, like what I said about our clubs, they don't have space to yeah. grow. And most of them are run by small committees of well-intentioned people who are not experts in developing tennis facilities. 
And mm. when you look okay. at the cost of developing indoor courts and you think of our small clubs, you no wonder nobody, you know, when they actually got all the information, um, no wonder here we are five years on, more than five years on, and nothing has been built. Mm. Nothing's even started. Yeah. So it doesn't, lots of ways that doesn't surprise me. But my point would be that if I was Tennis Scotland, I would have said, right, 15 million, where are our areas of biggest impact? And if you look at these names, might not mean anything to you, but Perth, Dundee, Inverness, Dumfries, Gala Shields, um, there are big towns spread across the country that have no indoor facility. Most of our indoor mm. facilities are in the central belt. I would have done it like that. I would have gone, right, okay, let's have six at two and a half million each and mm. and, and grow there. And yeah. instead, we still we still don't have anything. But it really is up to, I think, Tennis Scotland, Sports Scotland and the LTA to, they have the staff and they have the expertise to actually, let's work with those areas that they've identified let's get the clubs together the local authority together the schools together the, let's get everybody who is invested in tennis and sport in those areas together and let's identify uh -huh. the best place the best people what does it need to look like who does it need to service who's going to staff it and, and get on with it and instead it's it's almost been left to the man in the street or the man in the tennis club to beaver away and try and put something forward and most of them have fallen by the wayside because yeah. it's too difficult there's not enough support and it's very mm. very expensive and of course the clubs or whoever is applying has got to put their share of money in and most of our clubs mm. wouldn't have money to do yeah. that in any case in lots of ways it doesn't surprise me but it really disappoints me that our governing body hasn't taken more of a lead on that and said here's our plan for the whole country here's what we want to use this money for there you go, Perth, Inverness, you know, wherever they are. Mm. Right, let's do it. And even though, you know, there's there we've had two years of, of COVID, you know, nobody in Tennis Scotland was furloughed. And like what we said, you can do so much of your business by Zoom, yeah. you know, by meetings and things by Zoom. So mm -hmm. I, I find it incredibly frustrating. And I have believed for a long time now that, the boys would retire and there wouldn't be anything and and really that's why i've pressed on with my my center project in just outside of dumblane mm. and you know literally we are building in one field that is used only for grazing at the side of a motorway mm. and because it's green belt it has created a lot of uh, a lot of um object well not a lot of objectors so actually a small amount of objectors who make a lot of noise but what they have never done is really listen to what, what the what the plan is. For me, it's just the tennis centre. I don't have anything to do with anything else on that site. Um, and I think I and the project, my project, have been misrepresented for mm. years. Yeah. And yeah. anyway, we've managed we've managed to get the planning permission, but we have set this up. It'll be six indoor, six outdoor uh, courts, but there'll also be obviously a gym and a cafe. We're going to convert the, um, you know, there's a there's a country park and there's woodland on site. So we're not we're not touching any of that other than we will put proper trails through, fit trails, walking trails, cycling trails, and so forth, so that it really is open up free of charge to the mm -hmm. public. That part of it. Um, and tennis, if you let it stand on its own, uh, is very expensive. So you yeah. need other things to bring the the income in from from the gym, from the adventure mm -hmm. park. But, from from uh, you know from the cafe etc. 
Um, but we set it up as a charitable trust. So it's any, any funds that are generated, any profits that are generated are just go back into the sporting facilities for the community. And it's, it's yeah. pain play, uh, love. Mm. It, we've done it with absolutely the best of intentions, but it will provide a centre of national significance for tennis in Scotland, for competitions, for building workforces, for developing people to run the sport well. Um, and obviously for, for participation um, too. And it, it is the most wonderful site, which is why I've stuck out for it. And it's in, yeah. it's in our backyard, which means it's a bricks and mortar legacy. But yeah. I've, I've, there have been times when I've thought, why am I doing this? Why is it, why is it still me that's the one who's pushing for this? But I know that if I pulled away from that, there would be absolutely nothing because yeah. I don't yeah. see um, passion and yeah. and drive from anybody else and i think the fact that we have had no you know that none of that money has been spent on indoor facilities that no you know 50 percent of our public places to play are, are derelict i think yeah. that says a lot about who's leading the the, the the sport in the country yeah from your words you, you get the sense like you still don't believe it's like too late right like it's not too late for there to be like some sort of a you know, a push and a drive after after both Andy and Jamie like call it a day. Obviously, now we have uh, Emma Raducanu like wonderful success as well. Uh, but it's um, like I, I'm I'm a I'm a bit of a tennis player myself. Not very good in the slightest, to be honest. But um, I did get into it from watching Andy uh, back when I was like ten or eleven years old. Um, and uh, I've recently moved to Edinburgh, and there's a couple of indoor courts here. But like the expense, like it's like sixty pounds for like two hours of play. And it's just like, I can't, I can't afford that. Can't, like, none of us can afford that. So, um, I, I, I don't know, like, I, you get the sense from, like, your words, you're obviously very passionate about this topic, rightfully so, like, but you, you don't think it's too late, do you? Like, there's still, there's still hope, right, for, for there to be some sort of push in this country. I think um, in, in Scotland, certainly, the opportunity that presents itself from this uh, regeneration of park, public mm. park courts, for me, that's a huge thing. And that's why... I want to see. I want to see targets and objectives. I want to see sites identified. I want, you know, I want, you know, if if there's thirty million there, and if, if Scotland were to get three million of that, I mean, I think the LTA had said that the thirty million would represent around four and a half thousand courts. Well, mm. if we got ten percent of that at four hundred and fifty courts, and it was three courts in a park, you're talking about a lot of sites that could be regenerated around the country and that's the only way that we are really going to grow the game is by taking it into new audiences you know the, the existing clubs will have had a real boost um from covid because it was one of the two sports that we were allowed to play tennis and golf but they are existing clubs if we want to take it to new audiences and new areas they're going to have to be built so so when i saw this thing with the 30 million for uk government the lta i was like oh come on scotland Get, let's get hold of this. I mean, if, mm. if I had been in charge of tennis Scotland, I'd be all over that. I'd, I'd have my <laughs> list all grown up and it would all be done, you know, by now. Because that that is that represents real opportunity to, to take the sport into, you know, into new places, into new people. Because you need somewhere to play. But yeah. the courts on the road get the job done. Yeah. You know, we, we've had the shop window. We've still got the shop window to a, to a certain extent, but for how much longer? Who knows? I mean, up up here. Um, but uh, the other thing is you need workforce. You need people to drive activity. And that activity 
cannot be overly expensive. You have to make your sport affordable and accessible. So you need both. And so much of what I've done over the last eight years has been about investing in people to show people how to deliver tennis inexpensively. Big numbers, small spaces, any space, you know, and it's not one-to-one coaching and so forth. And I think uh, your, your point, Scott, is absolutely valid. The indoor tennis centres are expensive to build and tennis as a sport, most people see it as two people play or four people play and you split the cost between you. Whereas the same space could have 10 people playing five-a-side football or yeah. um, 14 people playing netball, if I've got the numbers right, of how many people yeah. are in a netball. <laughs> it's that kind of thing. That, that's, that's what we're up against. So what you need are people running tennis centres who understand how to put on big number activity that brings income in that can help you to offset the court hire charges mm. to, to everyone else. And that's also, I, I just created a, a course for the LTA about, that's just called Coaching Big Numbers. You know, so I, I deliver a whole thing. Mm. It's a three-hour course. I, I don't deliver all of it, but but we, but it was all filmed, if you know what I mean, so that it could, people could watch it online. But I, I showed them how to deliver to 30 kids on half a, half a tennis court um, as an example. of and, and there's lots of things you can do on tennis courts, like the cardio-type cardio tennis, uh, mm. tennis-specific fit, where you can get 30, 40, 50 people on one tennis court, a bit like an aerobics-type thing. So mm. if you're a centre... You can make quite a lot of money from that. That would then allow you to offset the cost to of the court hire elsewhere, and that's what I mean about my centre that I've created. I've created lots of other bits around it that will make money, that will offset the cost of the tennis. Um, so, yeah, I've 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 looked at all of that, and you know, all of the indoor centres, the pay and plays, are all the same. They're all very expensive at yeah. peak time. They really are. It's, but you know, they are mostly in sports centres where tennis is just an add-on to the sports centre. Yeah. You yeah. somebody in there as the tennis person who knows how to engage and create competitions and the big numbers and the fun element and the sense of belonging that would make those places successful. Because to me, they're soulless and lifeless, and 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 that's that's not a great advert for tennis. I, yeah. I want. I want more people like me who like make it fun and understand how to, and I suppose that's why I've, uh, the last eight years I've spent more time taking tennis into places where it doesn't exist and teaching people how to get others started. And, and that for me, that's, that would be my starting point if I was in charge of tennis school. You grow the game, you, you grow the numbers and you have to grow the, the places to play that are open to the, the public. And so I see, I see an opportunity, but whether we take it or not will really be determined by those mm-hmm. who are in charge of the game up here. Yeah. I'm going to start a petition, Judy, to have you <laughs> installed as the new CEO of Tennis Scotland. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's all the CV we need, isn't it? <laughs> what do you feel are like your proudest, um, your three top proudest moments or your mm. biggest achievements of your life? Um... I think the the most impactful day I think for me was um, the Davis Cup match in Glasgow between uh, GB and Australia which was the semi-final of um, 2015 and obviously 
we knew that FGV won, they would be in the final. And uh, we also knew that it was a very good chance that they could win the whole thing. Um, and we were very lucky that a number of the Davis Cup ties around around those years were in Scotland. And that was a, another wonderful shop window. Um, and I think that on the Saturday, uh, we we didn't know <clears throat> we didn't know well I, I did maybe about an hour before the match was due to come on court if Andy and Jamie were going to play together or whether Jamie would play with somebody else because as you all know it was a huge huge ask in those years for Andy to play three best of five matches across for three sure. days and yeah. win them all for the team to go through massive physical and emotional pressure for him mm. for many years. Um, and, you know, he, he'd won his singles the first day and um, and the GB had lost the second. So it was, one, it was one all going into that doubles and they had to win the doubles because I think, I think it was James Ward was, would have played on the last day against Tomic and that was an unlikely one for him to win. Um, but Andy, whoever it was that he was going to play, um, we reckoned he would have a good chance of, mm-hmm. of, of winning on the last day. Anyway, the, I, I remember sitting in the sitting in the stand, and uh, I, I knew Andy had told me that he was going to play with Jamie. And I, you know, in on the one hand, I'm thinking that's fantastic, and on the other hand, I'm thinking, oh God, you know, don't get injured or don't get nervous, whatever, whatever, because it is, it's a lot, and he puts so much emotion, as you know, he puts so much energy and emotion yes. into into his play, and especially in, in Davis Cup, and it was his big goal for that year, it was 2015 to, to win the Davis Cup for GB. So anyway, I sat in this uh, arena at uh, the Emirates, and there's maybe about 9,000 people in there, and indoor arenas, you know, the noise is deafening, fantastically mm-hmm. different and the you know the red hot chili pipers are playing and um, everybody's going crazy and onto the court comes Leon leading on Andy and Jamie t- to play to play the doubles and the crowd was just going nuts and and I just remember sitting there and, and looking around and I had my phone and I was taking you know the, the pics of it and I thought you know this is how far we've come as a nation you know, I was the Scottish number one for many years, and one man and his dog were the sheriff final <laughs> tournaments. <laughs> You'd get one line in the roundup of the of the local and national papers. Nobody was interested in tennis, yeah. and here was the World Cup of tennis in our country. Scottish kids uh, playing, Scottish players, and a Scottish coach. And Leon, as you know, he started with me when he was twenty. You know, just dropped out of college. He started with me, and um, you know, he's gone on to achieve great things as a leader, captain, coach. And it was, I think that's when it really sort of hit me. That's, this is what we've brought to Scotland. This is what, really what my family has brought to Scotland and to mm-hmm. tennis in the country. Yeah. And I, I, was, I remember just sort of sitting there and thinking, this is amazing. This is unbelievable where we've got to in the space of however many years from when I started as the national coach with nothing, mm. with literally a hopper of balls, a small block grouping at the Stirling University courts, a £25,000 salary, a £90,000 budget for the whole country, for everything. And there was yeah. four of us at the time in Tennis Scotland, four people. I was national coach, there was a development manager and there were two secretaries, one you would call now sort of CEO and mm. an assistant. 
And that was all there were. And we started with nothing. And then, I, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, this is unbelievable where we've, what we've, what we've managed to achieve. Um, yeah. So I think that, I think that was the, the, the most impactful one. I mean, the Fed Cup was a big one for me. Um, you know, getting the Fed Cup role, that was a big thing for me. It was really the first time I felt anybody had recognized that I was actually a good yeah. coach and leader. Um, never thought I would get that gig, but um, I think any of the Fed Cups that I did were were very they were very special. Be very proud to you know to to lead your country. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I mean there are so many attached to what what Jamie and Andy um, have done. But then probably my other proudest moment was making Black Crow at Strictly Come Dancing. See, 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 as, as we've mentioned Strictly, can I, can I just ask, what, what was Antoine Dubeck like as a partner? And I, I mean, Judy, I'm a massive Strictly fan. Like, I absolutely loved watching you on Strictly. If you could ever go back and do it again, who would you partner with if it wasn't Antoine? <laughs> Um, I I loved uh, I, I would I would choose Anton uh, any any time. I, I, mm. But I also I did Christmas Strictly one year and I danced with Neil Jones, and he was brilliant as well. He was a really brilliant teacher, very different type of teacher to to Anton, and he was absolutely brilliant fun. And I think. They, you know, they were all lovely, but I think, you know, if you have the soft spot for anyone, it would probably have to be Ali Ash. He's just like such a gentleman. Oh, just mm -hmm. the nicest young man. <clears throat> not, not so young now, like seven years ago. So maybe thirty or so. He was young, and he was, he would, he's, he's like lovely. Yeah, but you know, actually, and they're all, they're all brilliant dancers. But I think you get lucky if you, if you get a good personality fit with your partner, because then mm -hmm. the days are just great. Mm -hmm fun all day and, and I certainly had had great fun I always have these wild aspirations about going on Strictly you know if I like manage to become famous overnight and they, they <laughs> contact me and ask will you go on Strictly and I, I would just uh, it's, it's like it's like one of my dreams Judy so you've lived one of my dreams I would always I always wanted uh, my dream partner is Johannes because I just love everything about him so yeah yeah, that's just. Uh, I, I was desperate to ask you about Strictly Judy. I'm really glad that you brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's it's it was a great um, example of um, you know putting yourself out of your comfort zone and mm. trying something you'd never done before. Even the heels baffled me, and I mean I, I never wear heels, um, so I found it I found that difficult and strange as well. And I think also learning to a routine of something if you're not musical in in any way everything about it was challenging but it was all great fun until saturday night when you actually have to dance and then it's truly terrifying you're terrified that you're going to forget what you're doing and i think yeah. for somebody like me who's not in the entertainment business you get so excited by it all and you know there's the the lights and the band and the cameras and the audience and there's the judges and it's like it's so easy to get distracted and just kind of forget where you are and I had this mm. look that it was very much I don't know if you can see this clearly but it would be very much like 
And whenever he <laughs> saw that loop, he knew I had no clue what to do next. And he literally had to shut it <laughs> get going again. So, yeah, I was, I was really terrible, but I loved the, I really loved it. And it's funny, at Christmas time, I was showing, uh, I was showing some, uh, some young people, they were asking me about it, and I showed them one of the YouTube clips. And I actually, I was just laughing till I was crying. And I was like, I'm so bad. I'm so bad. Like, yeah. Um, but I love the, I love the whole, the, the, I think what it did for me, for my, for my confidence was, yeah. was huge. Because every time you survive yeah. a week of that mm-hmm. and you come mm-hmm. back and do it again, it doesn't matter if you were good or not. You've mm-hmm. actually survived a massive challenge. Um, and I think a lot of people recognize that you're, you're putting yourself out there. And you're really taking a big risk here. And this is actually pretty brave to do this. I never thought of that at the time. I just thought, oh, God, I'd love to do Strictly. This is fantastic. And then as I sort of got into it, I thought, oh, not sure. Well, I but I, I, actually, I'm really glad. <laughs> really, really glad I did. Do you still bring out your dancing shoes sometimes? <laughs> no chance. <laughs> I've still got them. I've kept both of them, but they will never see the light of day again. No, okay, I realised that it was not for me, and I'll stick to uh, chasing around, um, chasing a tennis ball around the court. That's fair. Maybe, maybe you could get Anton to come and do a tennis class with you, Judy, and turn the tables around. Well, he did try to link some of the footwork patterns into. <laughs> sort of thing tried everything to try and help oh. me to get better and then I think he just realized that it was yeah, well. probably not going to happen Jimmy in particular was he was quite distressed with the fact that I wasn't improving and uh, he, he went oh, you're not any better are you not listening to Anton <laughs> <laughs> another dance teacher to help Anton yeah. you know to help you if you're not him, sort of thing and I was like Calm down. And you know, he, he was sending me links to YouTube. He said, right, okay, so next week you're doing the tango. Right, here's the tango. And I found this online and watched this and look at this. And I was like, you're, you're treating it like, a, like it's a major competition. I have no aspirations to mm. to win this, obviously. But actually, he just wanted me to to get better and have a, have a good time. We should get him but, on the dance floor then. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I'd like to see them try it, see how they handle it. Has there been one story about Andy and Jamie that you've never told anyone before? Yeah, there's probably a lot. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, just, uh, that you might want to share with us. Give us some unique insight. Give us some unique insight, Judy. Go on. Um, Breaking news. Well, it was. It was, it was made me think of this um when Claire was t- telling the story of her son not wanting to join in with the tennis when I I took them to they wanted to go to try mini rugby at Stirling County mm. and I thought okay I you know I wanted them to try everything when they were when they were little and I think the only thing they didn't try was skiing um so um I, I booked them in for a little block at Stirling County and I think they were like six and seven and uh and I was really thinking, I don't really, I hope you don't get into rugby because I always think it's quite dangerous and I really, I don't really understand the rules and all the rest of it. However, I was happy for them no to idea. <laughs> so, uh, Knock each other to the ground. To, to, to many rugby. And on the, the second week that we were there, you know, they split them into little groups and uh, they, 
put them into a little game situation so on a little mm. mini part of the pitch and everything and the basic gist of it was about the you know throwing the ball and if you get the ball you run you put it down between the two cones and you've scored a try whatever and and uh, you know when, when kids are little they all run after the same ball they don't understand yeah. the thing about of course they don't they're too little mm. So Andy was always a very, very fast little runner and he was always very determined and competitive. So the ball is loose and he runs after it and he gets it, he picks it up and he runs as fast as he can. He puts it down between the two cones and then he's doing what he sees on the TV and he's the hands up and he's almost like doing his lap of honour and then the, the coach blows the whistle and uh, it's just doing like this and Andy's going, what? And said, no, you ran the wrong way. No! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, I was curious. And uh, Jamie was playing on another little mini pitch. So I sort of like turned my back, thinking I don't want to see this. <laughs> anyway, we, we get back in the car to go home. And uh, the boys are sitting in the back seat. And Andy says, Mom, I don't want to go back to mini rugby. And I said, yeah, not. And he said, the coach is an idiot. And I went, really? So, of course. And then Jamie said, Mom, I don't want to go back either. And I said, why not? And he said, I don't like getting dirty. <laughs> Love it. There's the, so I was sitting in the front seat going, um, but it was just quite funny. The two of them, completely different, completely yeah. different um, reasons for not wanting yeah. to go back. Jamie loves to be impeccable and perfect. Mm. Or he certainly always did when he was little. Um, and Andy, who just, you know, if, if, and, and this again, another thing about the importance of environment and teachers and first impressions mm. and all the rest of it. And I'm not saying the coach did anything wrong, he, he didn't. But I think when you understand kids, it's like, I would have just given it, wow, you're so fast. That was absolutely brilliant. What a run. But your goal is down that end. And I wouldn't have taken the point away from them or anything. I would have just, and I would have just quite calmly did it rather than, oh, wrong way, no goal. No points for you. I can just imagine, I can just imagine the rage of like Andy as he is now and the rage that he can get just in miniature. I can just yes. picture it. I'm, like, I'm not going back there because he's quite clearly an imbecile and I don't need to deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved to see his face. Yeah, exactly. Like, imagine no, the exactly. Uh, Judy, I just wanted to, obviously, Louis Player has been awarded with an MBE. I just wanted mm. to see if you can give a few words about the impact he's had and what a great person he is. I've met him a few times and he's just a legend. Yeah, he is actually an absolute legend. He is, um, you know, he's not, he, he wasn't a, a tennis player who went into coaching. He, but he, I first met him, he was coaching an Israeli team, um, Ehrlich and Ram, who were, I think they were at number three team in the world. Uh, must have been about 2006, I think. And I was in Monte Carlo with Andy and I was always going around the practice courts and observing sessions and so forth. And Jamie, of course, by this stage, uh, was doing much better in doubles than he was in singles. And it seemed quite clear to me that there was a potential career for him in doubles, but it would be difficult for him to get to a level in singles where he could make a living out of it. It's quite difficult for all the players. I mean, you really have to be probably 120 or better to mm -hmm. make 
a living. And I reckon if you're 120, you're probably not making a great living, especially now when airfares are, have, everything's gone up in price. There's less options. Of course, you have to pay all your own costs as a tennis player where mm. in a team sport. I mean, if they stuck with the rugby, they'd have been signed up by and they'd have had a salary and all the rest of it. <laughs> not to be, not to be. <laughs> so I think, um, and I was thinking, I, need, I really need to find somebody to, who could help Jamie um, fulfill his potential. And I watched, I sat in for about two hours and just watched Louis doing this practice session with his, this Israeli team. And then in the, I bumped into him in the foyer of the hotel later on, I introduced myself and uh, I said to him, look, I have a son uh, who I think could be a really good doubles player. And he said, ah, yes. He said, I know Andy. And I said, no, no, I I have an older son called Jamie. And I said, he's very, plays tennis very differently from Andy, blah, blah. And, uh, but I said, I'm looking for someone to help him. And that was when I discovered that Louis was currently at that time living in London because he had an English girlfriend. And he said, I've been living in London for three years. Nobody's asked me to do anything. So I've really just been traveling, doing overseas conferences, working with the Israeli team. So he asked for Jamie to send him a video of one of Jamie's matches. And he would have a look at it and let me know what he thought. And back came, so Jamie sent him a video. Back came this absolutely war and peace uh, detailed analysis of the match uh, with all the and some of it was written and some of it was in video form with all the lines and the, the, and he said yes he said some very simple things that he can do that will make him 100% more effective uh, very quickly and I said oh, well when might you be able to give him some time so he said I can't do anything until the end of May um, and he said I could do some weeks during the grass season so I took him on for six weeks because actually that was all I could afford um, it just about cleaned me out, but it was worth every penny. And actually, although I was paying him for his travel within London and his daily rate, I wasn't having to pay accommodation because he was staying at home. So it could have been a whole lot more. But it's why so I've always felt like if you if you can afford to fund the best people, the quality is more important than the quantity. So what I did was I put Jamie and Colin Fleming, who you might know, um, he was a, a Scottish player. He he now um, commentates more, and he does a little bit of work with the Fed Cup team. But Jamie and Colin down to London for six weeks with Louis, and I sent down a Scottish coach with them, so that if I could never afford an, any more time with Louis, another coach had learned six weeks worth of drills and and mm. input and how yeah. you communicate and so forth. So. Um, I think that's the very the nature of how things were in Scotland when I was the national coach was that we had very little in terms of facility and very little in terms of resource and I had to make every penny count and so that was my way of, of, of dealing with it so that was what I that was what I did and uh, he worked with them for six weeks and two weeks after the six weeks which was towards the end of July Jamie made his first ATP final with uh, Butterac and uh, they played the Brown Brothers in LA, made the final. So all that input uh, was absolutely worth the investment. And that was the start of a really good relationship with Louis. So he would help Jamie from time to time. And then as Jamie got into a situation where he won Wimbledon mixed the following year, and he was in a position where he was able to 
uh, afford to pay Louis a little bit more to help him. But he was having to share him with lots of other people and uh, other players and, and lots of other things that Louis was doing to make a living because Louis wasn't employed by anyone. He was self-employed back then. Um, so he started to do more and more with, uh, with Jamie and then he decided that he was going to get married to his English girlfriend and I was his best man or best woman. Amazing. Never done that before. Um, you know, this was a few a few years later because we, yeah. we became we became great friends and that's you know another reason why I believe in the coach parent player triangle mm. of everybody working together, being on the same page, respecting each other's roles, but understanding what the common goal is. So uh yeah and then I went to the LTA and I said to the LTA, look, you know, he's getting married um and he is going to be based in London. And he is a genius. He is honestly a genius. Um, and he's always learning. He's always learning new things, watching, reading. He just uh, one of these people who constantly doesn't sit on their laurels and think I know everything. He's always wanting to learn. So I went to the LTA and I said, look, I, I, think, I think you should consider employing him. Um, you know, one, Louis wanted to get his card or whatever and I don't, I don't think it's called the green card over here I'm not too sure yeah, card, anyway he needed whatever it was he needed um and it was Roger Draper who was the CEO at the time and um he uh, he he brought me in and listened to him and I mean his track record even back then was phenomenal it's even better now and he is the reason why well Jamie got to number one and won his slams and so forth um yeah. he realized helped Jamie to realize his potential and um, and what Jamie started to do was do his off-season doubles training in Florida, Chris Everts Academy, mm. with Louis. And he started, he, in, in time, he turned it into a little camp and he invited in other British players who were interested in pursuing doubles. And that camp, I don't think they didn't do it this year, but that camp endured for many years and has been the reason, well, the catalyst, I think, that with Louis the catalyst to people believing that they can have a career in doubles. And now we've got nine guys inside the top hundred and, and great Grand Slam successes with um, Jamie and Joe. Yeah. I just wrote. So yeah, he, he's, he's wonderful. He's, he's very, he's very, he's a very caring guy. He's got a 10 year old son now. Um, so yeah, I feel like we've been great friends for, for many, many years. And he is, there are many really good coaches out there and they all have different areas of expertise but I think that for me he gets the whole caring about the individual as a person just as much as the how they hit the ball or what their positioning is and all the rest of it I think he has that all-round care for them and Jamie's like a Jamie's like a son to him so yeah he's uh he's absolutely brilliant and fully fully deserving of that uh, MBE Please can you pass on our congrats to him. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah definitely do. Please do. Um, so there was uh, there was one other question. I'm very aware that we've kept you longer than we said you would, Judy. So thank you so much for uh, sticking around as long as you have so far. Uh, I hope we haven't scared you off. Um, but we uh, we couldn't have you on without asking about uh, probably the, uh, the 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 biggest story in tennis at the moment um, about Novak Djokovic. 
um, and whether or not he's going to be able to play the Australian Open. Uh, we were just wondering, mind sharing your thoughts on that and uh, how you see things playing out? Obviously, I think by the time this episode comes out, um, it might have been decided one way or the other. But yeah, we were just looking for your thoughts on that, if you would be willing to share. Yeah, I've been following that, like mm. like most other tennis fans have. Um, it's, uh, I mean, it was obviously been a story before before he even got on the flight you know is he going to play is he not going to play mm. nine times the champion but you know is he going to get vaccinated and is he going to go so I think that when uh, when I saw on I think it was on his Instagram that he put out that, <clears throat> that he had got a medical exemption um, and that he was going or he got an exemption permission I think he called it mm. um and he has always taken an anti-vax stance. So I thought, I wonder what the medical exemption is 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 for. Mm. And then, of course, um, it's it's turned the whole thing has turned into a, a bit of a political row now between the federal government and the Victorian state government, Stroke mm. Tennis Australia. But I think that the federal government have, it feels to me like they've got involved because of the backlash from the public. I think, uh, you know, the, the, the Melbournians have had a stricter lockdown, I think, than anywhere, 260 days or something in the last year and six lockdowns in total. And it's been really, really strict and rigid. And, you know, you can understand why the people that live over there are going, why one rule for us who live here and one rule for others who because of, of of who they are and mm. uh, that that certainly i think has played a big part in how things have have, have emerged since then but i think what, what i saw in the news this morning was that uh, the, the i think in the papers that have been lodged to be listened to on monday is that he's he said that he tested positive for covid on the 16th of december um, but the application for exemptions closed on the 10th of December. Yeah, so yes, I did think, see that. I yeah. think how convenient. It's going to be fascinating to see how it to see how it plays out. But I think Rafa summed it up pretty well when he was asked about it. I think he he summed it up exactly how most of us would see it. Is that everybody knew the rules? It's their country. They set the rules. If you want to go in, you abide by the rules. And all he had to do was have a jab like a, like anybody else but um yeah it's uh it's an interesting one and it, it's actually a shame that that this and all the protests and mm. um are, are, are overshadowing what everybody always called the happy slam like you know it's yes. my it's my favorite one of the, the slams i think just because it's so relaxed and it's always mm. in the sunshine everybody makes you feel very welcome always there so yeah, I, I just think it's it's hugely overshadowed what what we should be celebrating, which is that that here's live tennis still able to continue despite all the all the challenges. So yeah, I'm interested to see like everybody else what what happens on Monday. It's a very diplomatic answer, Judy. Rightfully <laughs> <so>. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I have learned over the years um, on the things that. Uh, you know, you never know who's listening. That's why, you know, like when I was saying, where's it going? You don't know who flips a bit and takes it out yeah. of context. For sure. You find yourself, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that's happened to me too many times. So, 
yeah, we'll we'll wait and see. But uh, yeah, it's an unfortunate uh, position to be in for everyone. For sure. So yeah. I think I think it's best like to try and end on a lighter note. Um, you know, uh, let's get back to Andy and Jamie. Um, they've had a you know they've had fantastic career so far. Uh, we're possibly in the final final like chapter of it, final couple of years. Um, what are your hopes for them going forward? What are the hope? What are your hopes? What uh, yeah? How how do you see the next few seasons playing out for them? I would just like them to stay uh, fit and healthy and enjoying what they do that would be my number one thing um it's been i think uh i think the last two years have been challenging for all of the players i think mentally a huge challenge you know all the bubbling um all the restrictions all the endless testing uh, form filling and so forth you know i, th- I think I think it's taken a lot of the joy and the fun out of it. I'd, I'd love these next two years for the fun to come back um, and maybe and, and hopefully for the restrictions to to ease and that they can achieve uh, what, whatever it is they're setting out for themselves to to achieve in, in what, however many seasons they, they end up um, playing for. But I think the most important thing is stay fit and healthy and enjoy enjoy what you what you're doing because if you get those two things right, your performances will be good and uh, and then hopefully you, you you get what you what you were hoping for but um yeah i think uh, i think jamie's also he started to really take an interest in these events that he's been setting up um yeah. you know th- through the pandemic you know he he came up with the idea of we all need to practice we all need to play we need to create something so like i said age at the start of this it's not not looking at what you can't do. It's about, well, what could we do? And what could we put in place? Yes, we have to all these rules to adhere to. But, you know, the, the first Battle of Brits we put on with the top eight players, that was so much about giving fans something to watch at a time mm-hmm. when Wimbledon was cancelled. It was about giving the players match practice for when the circuit opened up again. Um, and then the, the second one that he did, which was the team one, um, which really harnessed the juniors to the second level, to the third level, to the ATP and WTA tours. And it was a great, great opportunity for everyone, but especially for the younger players and the lower ranked players to really rub shoulders with the top ones. And I think that if you look at the performances of a lot of them since then, I think it has been a catalyst to the huge rise that some of them have made. Because the quickest and simplest way to get good at something or learn the next level of something is to work alongside people who are already there and excellent at what they do. And players ranked 300, 400, 500 or the juniors would never get a chance to be on a team bench or a practice court or the dinner hall with Andy, Joe Conta, Heather, Kyle, Dan, Jamie, Joe. It was really, and it was a great pulling together, I think, for British tennis of bringing these players together and all feeling they were part of the same thing in a really, it was very competitive, but it was the best fun. It's one of the best things that I've been involved in. And uh, it was Jamie that, that that made it happen. And of course, he came up with the, the Battle of Brits in Aberdeen, wanted to bring Absolutely. World Class to Scotland, which was mm-hmm. fabulous. It was a massive risk for him, you know, yeah. pandemic for a start, Aberdeen, northeast corner of Scotland. Um, but you know the players, they they they're gang now, and they 
they will go and they will have fun together. And, mm-hmm. you know, that was, I, I love that, you know, because he was bringing it to, bring it to Scotland. He was bringing it to a part of Scotland that, you know, if you live in Aberdeen, you're having to travel to most major sporting or entertainment events that, that go on. But they've got a fabulous new arena up there. Mm-hmm. So it's great to see him, to see him trying to grow the game, try to promote the game maybe looking at what he might do after his uh, career has finished. But he's got great people skills. He's very popular um, and, he's, and he's very creative as well. So that's, uh, that, that's been good to see. That, that's been, yeah. that's been, uh, that's been an, an, add, an add-in to the tennis as well. Even though, it, it, Mom, I'm just getting a delivery of something for Aberdeen. Can it come to your house? You know, and before, I, before I went to Aberdeen, my hall was full of all these boxes. I'm going, what is it? He's going, it's some of the merchandise. And it's this and that. Could you take it up? And I said, how do I take that up in my car? I had to do two runs up in the car to drop it in the storage at the hotel. But oh, no. some of the things that he doesn't think of. Um, all of a mom never. Logistical. And I'm going, but it's good old mom. She'll do it. Yeah, it's not like it's more. just it's not like it's just up the road for you <laughs> it's still quite no. a drive I know uh, yeah, it's about two and a half hours well, yeah about two and a half hours I suppose but anyway we were we were just about there we we had everything ready to go but uh, Covid killed us off unfortunately yeah. fingers crossed fingers oh, well, it'll, crossed be, it'll be it'll be it'll be even better this year Absolutely. hopefully it will be yeah, yeah for sure um and yeah absolutely i think that's about uh that's about that's about the end uh of of this episode have, have, right. we, 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 have we, we got time for a little quick fire round scott we, 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 we <laughs> yeah. five minutes. Judy. judy you tell us uh, we have about we have five quick fire questions and we're just intrigued to see uh if you if you, if you know the answer for them they're all about andy and jamie's career so if you're up for it um we'd, we'd be happy to fire away are you keen for it yeah okay Ready? Uh, so <laughs> just five questions. Five questions. So, um, uh, yeah, we're uh, five questions about Andy and Jamie's career. Uh, number one would be uh, Andy's first uh, ATP title. Do you remember what tournament it was and what year it was? It was in San Jose, and it was in two thousand and six, and he beat Blake Hewitt in the final. Indeed, he did. Yeah. Indeed, he did. Not going to uh, forget that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jamie's first ATP title. Um. That would be, oh, that's a trickier one. I'm going to say it would be with Buterek. I don't know if it was San Jose. It was. was it? it yeah. was indeed. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. We, yeah. When we were researching this yesterday, we were like, hey, that's nice. That's a nice yeah. coincidence. Yeah. Um, that was the following year, 2007. Yeah, 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 that's right. Um, so uh, Andy famously won Wimbledon for the first time in 2013, beating uh, Novak Djokovic in the final. Uh, this is this is an interesting one. Uh, I imagine there were a lot of emotions oh going through your head when watching that. Uh, can you remember the scoreline of that match? <laughs> Do you know I don't remember too much about that match. I know it was yeah. something like six three, six six four. Ooh, not bad. It was pretty close. That's pretty close. Very close. It was very close. Six four seven five six four. Um, so yeah, not not so far, but I imagine you've got some excuses for that one. I, I like I barely. I mean that that final <laughs> game. Oh my god! <laughs> the final game went on oh. for like I was an there hour on the so hill, I, you know. and it was a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't imagine. 
Um, number four, uh, Jamie's first uh, Grand Slam title. Uh, where and who? Uh, where was it, and who was his partner? When it was in two thousand and seven at Wimbledon with Yelena Yankovic. Indeed, it was. These are these are too easy. These are I too know, easy. Yeah, easy. <laughs> when we were doing them, I was like, "Those are easy," but, but the yeah, last one, well, maybe you know. not. <laughs> um, and I mean, the final one uh, is titles that Andy and Jamie have won as a team. Uh, I remember them winning in Valencia. Indeed, they did. I remember that one. Um, I'll give you a clue. It was there was one other one as well. <laughs> That's not helping much. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> can't Home remember. Of sushi. Home so, of sushi. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh, it was. Valencia, 2011. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, Tokyo uh, 2011, which Andy, Andy, I think, won the singles title there as well, I believe. So he won the singles and the double. So that was a good week for all of us. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was a great uh, tournament. Yeah, clearly, like the next time we have you on, uh, we'll have to uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have to come up with slightly harder questions than that, Judy. But um, but thank you so much for honestly like playing along with this entire thing. I think I speak for us all when I say. Uh, a massive thank you for uh, for taking a chance and coming on Murray Musings um, uh, because like honestly without without Andy Jamie and yourself I wouldn't have met any of these guys like I would never be like I I, I would never have met some of my some of my best friends so I'm just going to take a moment to say major thank you for everything that you've done um, and everything that you continue to do uh, Judy so thank you so much for for coming on this episode um we really we really really appreciate it yeah it really has been a pleasure speaking to you it's a pleasure to see you um zane I've, I've met many times peter i feel like i kind of know who you are but yeah oh, nice thank you. You. <laughs> Claire, i met at Cold cross and yeah so look we uh totally um appreciate all the support the amazing support that the boys have had through their careers it's it's been incredible you're you're an you're an awesome gang of people who you've never wavered. You know, you're always there and you're on top of, you know, you're on top of everything that you're doing, that they're doing. You probably know more about what they're doing than I do. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, sport is nothing without fans. So, you know, you, you do a brilliant, brilliant job and we are very, very grateful to each and every one of you and all those of you who are listening out there too, eventually. <laughs> so thank you from us. No worries. Let uh, let Andy and Jamie know that we'll we'll be here until the end. We'll be here until the end, all of us, uh, right until the end of their of their careers, and, and through uh, their legacy as well. Absolutely. absolutely. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Watch this space. I'm I'm yeah. going to get on that uh, those park courts. Uh, you've you've reignited that. I don't trust. Uh, I don't trust do you, that somebody else has got that right. Do we want to sure. take a selfie? <laughs> Oh yeah, can we do that? Can we take, can we take a, wee, a wee screenshot? Is that all right? Can we do that? Like, uh, here we go. How do we do that? I have um, no idea. No. Uh, <laughs> let, me, let me have a look. Uh, I've got a around. phone, if that helps. Can you, yeah, just do yeah, one. You go, do it on the phone. Do it on the phone, Jan. There you go. Hi. Right. One, you. two, three. Cheers. Okay, I think that worked, hopefully. There you go, um, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is going to be really good for our listeners right I got now. It. <laughs> that's, that's, it. That's, okay. that's, that's good. Love it. That's good.
<laughs> um, and yeah, that wraps up uh, our extra special episode of uh, of Murray Musings. Uh, thank you very much for listening on into this episode. Uh, I've been Scott. Uh, she's been Claire. She's been Zainab. He's been Peter. And that, of course, has been our massively extra special guest, Judy Murray. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Hi, I'm Andy Murray, and you've been listening to the Murray Musings podcast.